The book of Philemon, uh, as, as you know by now, was written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, he is a prisoner uh, for the gospel. He's been imprisoned for his relentless preaching that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And uh, while he's imprisoned, he continues his ministry, uh, primarily through the form of letter writing. And uh, there's these various communities of Christians uh, around the ancient world that he has founded and uh, seen churches bl blossom up and uh, through writing letters, um, he continues to shepherd and to pastor and to lead uh, these groups of people. And uh, the book of Philemon is actually a letter as well and uh, written not to a church community but to a specific individual and his household within the church in the city of Colossae. And so this letter was written and delivered alongside the letter to the Colossians and uh, written to this guy Philemon who is a house church leader. He along with who we assume is his wife, Apphia, in verse 2, um, are hosting a, a house church in their place, and uh, Paul has this special letter uh, for Philemon that we've spent the last uh, couple weeks in, and we'll wrap up this morning. And so, um, by way of context, the first thing we need to know is that when we think prison, um, it's a very different picture than the reality that Paul was writing from. And we don't know exactly what his scenario was. There's several different ways uh, that the Roman government would imprison people like Paul, but most likely it's a, it's a house, uh, house arrest kind of situation where he's probably on an upper floor of a building and uh, most likely actually chained to another guard and kind of, or to a guard and sort of just in this place where he really can't do much. And another difference is that in the modern day when we think the prison system, we think prison food and all that kind of stuff, but in the ancient world, um, the Roman government didn't provide any amenities to prisoners. And so if you were in a situation like Paul was, you would be dependent upon people you knew on the outside to bring you food and to bring you supplies and to help you keep communications alive with those on the outside. The, the government didn't do any of that. And that, the reality is that's still the way many prison systems work in the world today, uh, especially in places uh, around Africa. And so that's, that's the situation Paul most likely finds himself in, is that he's in this, he's as a prisoner and completely dependent upon his friends and greater community to bring him food on a regular basis so that he can survive. And so we get the, uh, the impression that one of the people who's been really, really helpful for Paul during his time in prison is this guy Onesimus. Onesimus, we know, was a former slave um, and had robbed his, his former master in a significant way, had fled Colossae, and now he finds himself in this, in this place where he, however he did, he's become, he's become a, a friend of Paul's. And so on a regular basis, we kind of get the impression that Onesimus is serving Paul by bringing him food and supplies and also assisting in Paul's communication with those on the outside. And, um, and Paul says in verse uh, 11 that Onesimus has become useful, both to you, meaning to Philemon, but also to me. And so we, we think that's probably what Paul means by useful, is that he's become a servant who's actually assisting my life and ministry while I'm on the inside here. 
okay? And so at some point in Paul and Onesimus' conversations, um, Paul is, is able to present the gospel of Jesus in a way that Onesimus responds to and, and comes to faith in Christ and becomes a Christian. And even though he has this kind of sketchy past as a runaway slave and a thief, uh, he's, now, he's now been received by Jesus into this family. And as Paul and Onesimus' conversations and relationship begin to develop, they also make the connection at some point that the guy that Onesimus ran away from and robbed is this guy Philemon who Paul also knows really well who was also kind of another protege of Paul's that he had mentored and discipled in Christ. And so now you have this really interesting thing happening where the runaway slave and the thief that's assisting Paul turns out that Paul also is connected to the guy that the guy ran away from. And so the scene is that as Onesimus would often carry Paul's letters for him to the various places uh, around, this letter is going to be delivered to this guy Philemon, Onesimus' former master and the one that he had robbed. And so I want you to imagine that, that scene with me where Paul goes, Onesimus, this, is one, this one's going to be a little weird. This isn't just some church community that I need you to drop the letter out for. This letter is going to Philemon. And Onesimus was like, I don't want to go to Philemon. <laughs> We're not good. And Paul's like, I need you to trust me on this. Take this letter and bring it to Philemon's house. And so Onesimus does, and he sets off on this journey back to Colossae. And imagine as he's walking down the road to Philemon's house, knowing this guy that he has, uh, he has run away from and has robbed for everything he's taken, he's going to go back and knock on his door. And he gets up the courage, and he goes up, he knocks on Philemon's door. Philemon answers, and there is Onesimus, this guy who took him for everything. And of course, I would imagine that Philemon immediately goes, Appia, call the police, right? This is not a good situation. I don't know why he's here or what he's doing here. So call the police. And Onesimus says, please, just real quickly, will you read this letter? Just read this letter first. And so he's skeptical, a little confused, but Philemon takes this letter and he begins to read it. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Philemon goes, wait, you know Paul? And Onesimus is like, yeah, I've been hanging out with Paul for a while. In fact, he led me to Christ. Philemon was like, no, that can't be right. Let's keep reading here. That can't be what's going on. Paul's smarter than that. He wouldn't get deceived by a guy like you. And he continues to read and he gets to a place like verse 10 where Paul says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. The little interesting play on words is that the word, the name Onesimus means useful. He's basically saying formerly he wasn't Onesimus, but now he is Onesimus. He has been to me and he can be to you as well. So at this point, we assume that Philemon's maybe starting to get the idea. Okay, something has happened here. 
something has changed in this guy. And this servant that had run away and that had stolen from me, that maybe he truly has been born again and made a new person. Maybe he really is uh, now part of our family. And so Paul's asking me to forgive him and to not press charges, which those charges could very likely have been death for Onesimus. And so I'll welcome him back as a hired hand. I'll let him back on my staff and I'll put him up in the bunkhouse with the rest of the servants and he can work with us and, and be part of the operation again. But then Philemon gets to this place in the letter where he realizes Paul's actually asking way more than that. Let's keep reading in verse 12. He says, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that, was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And this is where Philemon would realize, no, Paul's not just asking me to not press charges and to let Onesimus back into the, uh, the operation as a servant. But he's actually asking me to welcome him as a brother in Christ, better than a slave, as a dear brother. And Paul clarifies even more what he's picturing in verse 17. So he says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Now this is where Philemon's in this really interesting spot. Where he's going, yeah, I know how to welcome a runaway slave who stole from me. I can be merciful to him and I can even extend forgiveness. But Paul seems to be raising the standard significantly here and asking Philemon, imagine if I were to travel back to Colossae to come and visit you and your family in your home. Would you put me out in the bunkhouse with the serving staff? Would you put me to work in the fields? No. How would you welcome me, Paul, into your home? And of course, Philemon would welcome Paul as a guest of honor. He would receive him with joy and he would put him up in the finest house on the estate and he would wash his clothes and tend to his wounds and he would throw probably a huge feast of celebrating that Paul has returned from prison. The one who brought us the gospel of Jesus is back here and we're going to throw a party and celebrate. Paul says, I know that's how you would welcome me as your brother. And I want you to welcome him as if you, would, you were welcoming me. And there's a beautiful thing that's happening throughout this letter. We mentioned the first week that this is really the only epistle that Paul writes where he doesn't explicitly recount the story of Jesus' life, suffering, death, and resurrection. 
Because we understand that story to be central to this gospel, this good news about what God's up to in the world. But in this little letter to Philemon, he never says, Jesus died and Jesus rose again and here's all what that means. But instead, what Paul's actually doing is reenacting that story in the context of their relationships. Paul is actually acting out the thing that God has accomplished for us in Christ. He's modeling the gospel story. So there's this place that he writes in Ephesians chapter 1 where he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with, the pleasure, with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. One of the beautiful places in Paul's writings where he goes, here's what's so good about the good news. Here is a big, big run-on sentence kind of trying to capture just how much God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus, and that every part of God's interaction towards us has been marked by love and grace and this desire for redeemed or reconciled relationship. And at the very end, he wraps it all up with that phrase that he has extended his grace to us freely in the one he loves. In the one he loves. When Paul writes about God the Father, And the one he loves, who's he writing about? He's writing about God the Son, who we know is Jesus. And so it's this picture that God's blessing, God's grace, God's very life is given in the one that he loves. In the King James, that little phrase is is translated in a beautiful way. And it says this, that he has made us accepted in the beloved. That this is one of the things that's true about all followers of Jesus at all times, at all places. That we are now accepted in the beloved. Throughout the New Testament, the phrase that Paul and the other authors use most commonly to refer to Christians is those who are in Christ. In fact, Paul never refers, uses the term Christians. When he talks about Christ followers, the primary identity that he, he uses is that we are those who are in Christ or accepted in the beloved. Meaning that our standing with God is not based on our record or our performance but somehow we have been miraculously and mysteriously and eternally joined together with Jesus, united with him. So much so that the only word that human authors can come to describe the nature of that relationship is in. Not just that we're with Christ, not just that we're like Christ, not just that we follow Christ, but so close so deeply united that we are actually in Christ. 
And the nature of salvation is that we are invited to participate in Christ's relationship with the Father. That we are accepted in God's beloved Son. Okay, so to illustrate, um, I may have told this story before, but it's been almost 14, 15 years since I first asked Jen's dad for his blessing to ask uh, Jen to marry me. Um, I invited him out for coffee at Starbucks, and uh, I took out my earrings, and um, it's actually the last time I, I never put them back in. Um, and I sat down with, with Brad, Jen's dad, and, and kind of tried to express how, how much I had grown to, to love and care for his daughter and how, uh, and how committed I was to, to trying to become the man that would be worthy of her and, uh, and asked for his blessing to, to propose. And uh, I'll never forget that encounter as we're sitting across the little round table in Starbucks in Corvallis. And Brad says, well, Sharon and I, Jen's mom and I, have raised Jen to be a responsible adult and to make wise decisions. And so if she wants to marry you, then we're behind her 100%. So yeah, you can have my blessing. Which on one hand is probably his way of saying, you're not quite what we had in mind. <laughs> if I were going to choose, I don't know that I would choose you. Um, but we're going to trust our daughter. We're going to trust that she, she knows what she wants and knows what's best for her. Right? And very quickly from that moment on, we obviously got engaged, got married. And from that moment on, I was included or accepted into the Kirkbride family. And I remember that first Christmas after we had gotten engaged and I was invited to be part of family Christmas with the Kirkbrides. And you'll have to understand the contrast for me coming from being a missionary kid um, to, and celebrating Christmas in a really beautiful but humble way um, to being a Kirkbride kid and celebrating Christmas in a really amazing way where there is a pile of presents for each of us, now me included, that included, I mean, this was 2004, included a brand new BlackBerry, right? Some of you kids ask your parents, it's like an iPhone without buttons, but it was a big deal back in the day, and it included golf clubs, and it included, like, literally thousands of dollars of presents, and I'm sitting there, and it's incredibly awkward for me, to be honest, and Jen's even like, are you, you don't like it? Or I'm like, no, um, I've, I've never, never had a Christmas like this before, right? Um, and from that point on, I mean, Jen's family has welcomed me in. Now, if, imagine if I would have shown up at the Kirkbride Christmas that year having not been engaged to Jen. Um, I kind of already knew the family, and if I just knocked on the door and said, hey, can I do Christmas with you guys? Um, they maybe would take me in. They're gracious people like that. But I guarantee it's not quite the same dynamic, right? Like this poor punk rock kid knocking on the door with nowhere else to go for Christmas. They would have been kind. Um, so what's the difference? It's that I was accepted in their beloved. That they welcomed me into their family as someone who is now united with their daughter. And all of the status 
that she has in their family was now given to me. And that relationship that she has with her parents is now a relationship that's been extended to me as well. That I was accepted in the beloved. Not because of who I am. And Brad made that very clear at Starbucks. Because of who she is. And if I'm with her, then I'm in. That's the picture that the New Testament gives us of this idea of union with Christ. Being accepted in the beloved. That God relates to us not on the basis of our record and what we've done right and what we've done wrong and our past and, and our religion and all that kind of stuff. God relates to us as those who are united to his son Jesus. So that our standing with him is no longer based on our performance, but on Christ's. And there's a certain awkwardness to that, right? When I sat there that first Christmas and go, I don't deserve this. I, this is, is uncomfortable for me. Imagine you bring a really nice bottle of wine that you've been laying down for years and waiting for the right celebration. You bring it over to my house for a big party of some kind and you finally uncork it and it's this beautiful thing that you've been waiting for and you're ready to serve it and I pull out this wine glass out of the dishwasher that's got like cilantro caked on the inside of it and it's just dirty and some you know remnant of whatever was in there before. This filthy wine glass and I bring it up to you and ask for a, for a glass of your amazing Pinot, right? And you pour it in. There's a certain awkwardness to the gospel that you would never serve a fine wine in a dirty glass. But Jesus has poured his life into me. And so when Paul says, I want you, Philemon, to welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me, he is reenacting this gospel story where Jesus says, Father, I want you to welcome Pete and all your people as you welcome me. And what Paul's clear to point out in Ephesians that it's not like the Father's now somehow obligated to do it, but it very clearly says, according to his pleasure, that the Father is pleased to relate to you and I in the same way that he, he relates to his firstborn son. That we are now active participants in that relationship, accepted in the beloved. And so the good news for us, for any of us that ever worry, I wonder how God really feels about me. I wonder what he really thinks about me. I wonder what he says about me when I'm not around. Or maybe I know that God loves me, but I have a hard time believing he likes me. How does God really feel about you? Well, the answer to that question is, well, how does God feel about Jesus? That's how he feels about you. You are accepted in the beloved. And he is pleased to welcome you into the family and to relate to you in the same way that he relates to his son. 
and all the blessings and all the benefits and all the blackberries and all the golf clubs that he would give to his own son, he's now extending to us as well. So sometimes, I don't know about you, but I have this deep belief that I'd rarely ever express out loud. But functionally, I, I operate as if my standing with God is on this sliding scale of approval. One through ten. How does God feel about me today? Well, have I been good? Have I been faithful? Have I been pure? How did I perform yesterday? That must be my number with God today. But if this gospel of acceptance in the beloved is true, then that whole scale goes out the window. And our identity and our standing and our relationship before God is completely wrapped up in our union with his son Jesus. And he's pleased to welcome us in. And so we have this exact picture playing out. And Paul, in this beautiful little reconciling role that he plays between Onesimus and Philemon, is himself demonstrating the good news about what God has done. Not just forgiven us and given us a clean slate. Not just called us to be servants or slaves that live out in the barn, but to actually become brothers of the Son of God. To become part of this family. So we are accepted in the beloved. So a couple implications for that. The first is, If God has declared me to be acceptable, then who am I to declare that I'm not? For many of us, this journey will be one towards self-acceptance, which is a strange idea, I know. But if God has declared that I accept Pete, and I accept you, and you, and you, but we continue to reject ourselves, then we are not living in line with what God has declared to be. Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. That doesn't mean I'm doing it all right. You know I'm not. I know I'm not. God knows I'm not. But it means that the, God, that the, the self God has accepted is this self, this person. And the one that he is working by his spirit to form the image of Jesus in, it's this guy here today. Like, we've all got sketchy pasts, right? And that's the person, that's the story, that's the life that God has declared to be accepted in Christ and the raw material that he wants to work with to form the image of his son in more fully. And so the first step in that journey is learning to accept the self that God does. Secondly, it goes outward. In Romans chapter 15, Paul writes, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So if the nature of the gospel is that God has accepted us in Jesus, then he's saying the logical outflow of that 
has to be that we would go around being people who extend that acceptance to one another. That if we've been forgiven, we should be people who forgive. That if we've been loved, we would be people who love. If we're people who have been blessed, then we're people who bless. And if we're people who have been accepted, then we will be people who are accepting of ourselves and of one another. Why? In order to bring praise to God. Have you ever thought of accepting one another as an act of worship? As a way of glorifying God and revealing his character and who he is and what he's like to the world? Instead of judging, instead of holding people in the boxes that we would want to paint them into, but to extend this inclusive, gracious, loving acceptance towards each other. To welcome one another, just as in Christ God has welcomed us. To share of our life, to share of our time, to share of our energy, to share of our resources, to give ourselves to one another as God has given himself to us in Christ. Can you imagine a community that was living that way within a city like Bend? A community where you would show up and no matter what you believe about faith and God and religion and Jesus and all that kind of stuff, that when you showed up there, you would come away going, I still don't maybe know about everything they believe, but that place and those people were the most loving and accepting people I've ever been around. They welcomed me in. They treated me like family. Now, of course, that would have implications for our gatherings here on Sunday mornings, and we long to see God to continue to grow us into a hospitable and welcoming and accepting church. But I'm picturing something way bigger than that, that the way we live seven days a week the way we inhabit our neighborhoods, the way we operate within the places that we work and the places we hang out. That this gospel of acceptance would be something that we, like Paul, are learning how to model and embody and reenact on a regular basis. Extending grace, opening arms, welcoming one another as though we were welcoming Christ himself. But it starts here, with us, as the family of the beloved. And one of the ways that we reenact this story on a regular basis is by coming to the table. And to use my picture from earlier, by bringing our dirty glass, right? Our sketchy past, our mixed motives, all of our doubt mixed with everything else. And letting God accept us. Not on the basis of how good we've been, but on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we don't do this in isolation, we do this in community. That we come to receive the body and blood of Christ in the bread and in the cup. To receive that acceptance, but we do it together. Sharing a table in every culture on earth is an expression of relationship, of vulnerability, of acceptance. 
that when we eat this meal together, we are expressing one, to one another that I, I'm with you. I welcome you. We're together. So we come as a family on a regular basis. And for those who would like to receive communion, you'll be invited again today. And so as we close, not just this sermon, but this series before we transition to some other stuff that we'll talk about this summer. My hope, and as Ken and I have walked through this, this little book together, our hope truly is that we would catch a glimpse of what Jesus had in mind for this new humanity that he's calling out. That we would be a people who live look and live radically different than the world around us. That this gospel of grace, this gospel of reconciliation that's strong enough to make a slave and his owner recognize one another as brothers, that we would then be sent out as agents of reconciliation, as Rick said earlier, as people of peace, as communities of grace and inclusion that we would forgive one another and that the world would get to see the good news of Jesus, not just in our words, but in our very lives. And for that, we'll need the Spirit's power, which he has given to us freely and abundantly in Christ. So will you stand with me? We'll pray. The table will be open for those that would like to come receive. And also, if you'd like to receive prayer this morning, Back in the corners by the exit sign, some members of our prayer team would love to pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life, if you just want to ask, ask somebody to pray for you, they'd, they'd be happy to do that. And I would encourage you to do that this morning. So Father, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your son. That you have poured yourself into our dirty lives and have made us new, have made us whole, and are continuing to graciously, wisely, patient, patiently form the image of your son in, our, in your people. So we are thankful to be recipients of this grace and this gospel. Thank you for including us in your family and for relating to us as those who are in your son. And so I would pray, God, would this gospel sink deep in us? Would it not just be an interesting idea or something we kind of agree with? But Spirit, this week, wherever we find ourselves, would you open our eyes for opportunities to reenact, to extend grace, to accept one another, to love as you have first loved us. We trust you, Lord, and are so thankful for that invitation that we have to be part of you and what you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.